Welcome to Testers Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Testers Island Discs, where today my special test bash guest is Elizabeth the Grober. By day, Elizabeth is a test engineer with Mendix in Rotterdam, but she's very well-traveled. Her name's Polish in origin, but she has an American passport, and she's traveled all over the world as a speaker with repeat appearances at the likes of Agile Testing Days and Let's Test. And she's soon to speak at her third different test bash, this time in Germany, with a talk, Doubt Builds Trust. Hello, Elizabeth, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. It's a delight to have someone who's so well-traveled, as I say. When it comes to your background, which country do you identify with most? Like, say, at the Olympics or during the World Cup, who, who are you rooting for the hardest? Oh, man. Sports-wise, I'm just a terrible sports fan because whatever is happening, I just, like, I get excited or confused. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the most American of anything. Yeah, I was born there and grew up there and lived there until a few months ago. So, mm. yeah, it, it would be hard to say I'm anything else, honestly. Mm. Well, we're talking a bit about how you crossed the pond, but as you were growing up, how important was music in your younger years? Oh, it was huge. I feel like that was uh, one of the my big hobbies and something I did both inside and outside of school. Yeah, growing up from a young age, I started piano lessons when I was five years old, I think. My parents could confirm that for mm. Yeah, so I, I, I've been playing the piano that whole time, and then I took lessons through college, and then I've had either a keyboard or a piano in my apartment since then. And then I, what else? I played flute in my high school band and mellophone and marching band and was in various choirs and plays and musical reviews throughout my school years. So yeah, I think I feel like I'm always whistling something by accident, <laughs> <laughs> unknowingly. You describe yourself on Twitter as a retired pianist. What, what made you hang up your keys, if that's the phrase? <laughs> Put down the keys? <laughs> that's a good visual. Yeah. Um, I just, I haven't had somewhere to perform. I think when you're taking lessons, you have the sort of recitals and mm. um, right in a collegiate setting, you have the right, like people who are playing other instruments or singing or something who need an accompanist or a jazz band needs somebody or right there sort of like gigs and, and things around to jump onto and yeah in in the real world I haven't been part of a band or found a way to be performing consistently that way so that's uh how I think of myself right yeah. without actually performing all the time it, yeah I'm just playing for myself now there are certain skills that you can put to one side for a long time and then come back and pick up where you left off. I guess something as technical as piano playing, is there a certain amount of uh, like ramp up time if you come back to it? Oh, certainly. I think that's one of the most frustrating things about it for me now is how is my parents have all these recordings from when I was little and when I was so much better and, <laughs> and thinking now about how long it takes me to learn something or how quickly I can pick something up. Yeah, I don't know if you've read Flowers for Algernon, but it's this book where someone right, like becomes really smart and then mm. dumb again. And they can, right, like being able to feel that difference is yeah. harder than actually learning it or having had it and lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, talking about the variety of music you've experienced in the past and performed in, and looking here at your five choices, you've clearly got quite a depth and interesting breadth of knowledge. How hard was it for you to narrow yourself down to five song choices? Oh, supremely hard. Yeah, just like an impossible task to the point where I was like, I'm just going to change the question from favorite to outlining my musical career, because that's something I can at least like get a handle on. Um, 
yeah, the prospect of choosing things that are my five favorite or, or really uh, any kind of favorite for me I, is hard because I like variety. So it's very contextual of like, this is the most recent thing I've read or the most recent tea I have in my cupboard, whatever the thing is. <laughs> okay. So if you'd like to pick your first musical selection out the cupboard, what was song number one that you came up with? Yeah, I guess my first selection would be um, the Tonight Quintet from West Side Story. Yeah, I was definitely a big fan of musicals growing up. My parents really introduced me to them. And West Side Story was one of the few videotape rentals my sisters and I could agree on when we went to the video store on a Friday night to go watch something. So I've, I've seen that movie a million times and on stage several times as well. Uh, and this is um, sort of a climactic scene and uh, one where all the voices overlap in different parts and drives the story along as well. To me, it's like what a musical should be doing. It does it well. Yeah. Is it one that you've performed in yourself at all? Because I think of it as one of these like quintessential American musicals. Oh, yeah. What? I was like a background person in the dance scene in West Side Story. I was like very much not in this <laughs> uh, front and center in this one. But um, yeah, I have been in the production. The Jets are gonna have the day tonight. The Jets are gonna have the way tonight. The Puerto Ricans rumble, fair fight. But if they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. We're gonna have them a surprise tonight. We're gonna cut them down the size tonight. We said, okay, no rumbles, no. But just in case they jump us, we're ready to miss tonight. We're gonna rock it tonight. We're gonna jazz it up and have us a ball. They're gonna get it tonight. The more they turn it on, the harder they fall. Well, they begin it. Well, they begin it. And we're the ones to stop them once and for all. That was the quintet reprisal of Tonight from West Side Story. That was the original Broadway cast version. Now, Elizabeth, you mentioned you demonstrated an interest in music during your younger days and at college, but you also from the beginning had an interest in IT as well. Your first role at Colby College was as website manager. How did that come about? Yeah, I needed an on-campus job <laughs> to make some money and uh, fill up some afternoons a couple days a week. And the uh, bookstore didn't want me I didn't have any retail experience. And so even though I was a math major, they said I wasn't eligible to count money. So I ended up with uh, this other job. Yeah, managing the website and working with the sort of marketing department on the magazine and maintaining basically the online brochure for the college at the time. So presumably this is this predates the kind of social media managers we have today. It's not quite the same streams, but is it the same, the same kind of behind the scenes looking after the, the day-to-day running of it? Oh, no, it was much less involved than that I would say I, I was on a team with uh, several people and so I was it was uh, my first foray into copying and pasting into a content <laughs> management system I mean that's a useful skill it's just not mm. the most exciting thing and yeah to say that I was managing anything although I think my title may have been manager that would be quite a stretch indeed yeah website website person yes right I sat in front of a computer I, I was a monkey yes <laughs> Weirdly, my own route into IT is very, very similar. I studied journalism at university and we had one module which was called New Media. And this was basically learning how HTML works and building a HTML page. It was something I'd had a little bit of personal experience at, building my own website in my younger days. So 
I kind of almost ended up teaching that course because I knew more than the lecturer. Oh, and that was at the point in which I realized, actually, I, not only do I enjoy this, I'm quite handy at it. So, uh, yeah, it's funny how early the seeds get sown. And for yourself, that continued because IT and music has kind of interwoven itself through your career as well. You've had your own experience working in online radio. Oh, yeah, that's true. I worked for the National Public Radio Station in New York, WNYC, and I showed up right around the time they acquired WQXR, the classical radio station. And yeah, it was a, it was a great point in their growth where they were moving from just needing me as an intern when I first showed up. Yeah, definitely spent a couple of years there copying and pasting into their <laughs> content management system. Uh, I was the go-to person for that. And then as their team was expanding and as they were growing their properties and particularly their mobile apps, I was in the right place at the right time to be, have already complained about everything and mm. known the system really well and known its flaws. So that made it easy to jump into testing full time there. And so what was it after that, which eventually triggered your move across the ocean from New York? Oh man, uh, so many things. Uh, I, I was... Um, looking to get out of New York, certainly, and, and uh, maybe more urgently out of my apartment. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a role that combined a few things that I wanted at a time when I could accept it. And so, so I came over here. It's, I've been writing more on Abation, and I visited the Netherlands a few times and knew enough about it that I felt like I could come here by myself and really enjoy it. And uh, I have. And now that you've arrived here in Europe, obviously you're a massive part of the agile testing scene over here. We're going to talk in the next section about your upcoming talk at Test Pass Germany. But before that, let's hear about your second song choice. Oh, sure. This is La Cathédrale Engloutie. I think that's how you say it. Anyway, um, by WC. It's something that my piano teacher growing up, uh, Gary Landis, recorded. And he was a big advocate for both recording and playing things that were not sort of top shelf pieces, the things that you would sort of hear either on the radio or sort of think of when you think of classical music all the time. And I think in that way, he sort of maybe not inspired me, but it's it's something that I think about when I realize that I found this niche in software testing and found something that I really love to do, that it doesn't have to be sort of like the most obvious or famous thing, right? As long as you find something that you enjoy, you can find someone who uh, there's a market for it. It follows the story of this castle that now, of course, I can't think of the name of, um, off the coast of France, where you can't reach it when the tide is up. You mm -hmm. have the, the road to it is, is covered, and then it sort of rises out of the ocean as the tide recedes.
That was La Cathedrale Anglouti by Claude Debussy. The version you heard there was performed by Francesco Piemontesi. So Elizabeth, Test Pass Germany is coming up and your talk is called Doubt Builds Trust. Doubt sounds like something we should have got rid of by now. <laughs> We've been doing, you know, <laughs> software development has been going on for, well, in its current form for like nigh on 50 years now. Why haven't we solved all the problems already? Hmm. There are always going to be problems. Uh, <laughs> I think if we had solved all the problems already, software testing wouldn't exist as an industry, right? Like I, I, uh, I would question the taking that argument to its logical conclusion. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that that people will be able to realize that saying I don't know and admitting where they are vulnerable instead of being confident about things that they don't understand will open them up for learning and and understanding and, and listening in a way that, um, yeah, just sort of proceeding onwards and Googling later just mm-hmm. doesn't. I think the reason why people are uncomfortable saying I don't know is because it, it's perceived as a sign of weakness, particularly when you've got like a, a hierarchy. You know, if a manager is asking you something, they've come to you for an answer and you say to them, basically, I cannot give you that answer. Now, there may be a good reason for that and that may be how you lessen the blow, as it were, but how do you get more comfortable with saying I don't know? It is uncomfortable. I understand why it feels like weakness, but you got to practice it. Something that, right, the more you do something that's hard, the easier it will come to you. And I think that's true of software testing skills and, and any skill, right? The more that you practice, the more it will become second nature and it won't, it won't seem so scary. And there are levels of not knowing, right? I mean, if someone comes and asks you, like, um, let's say they come to me and say, Neil, I want you to write me a performance test plan. And how would you go about doing that? Now, now my I don't know wouldn't be it wouldn't, I'm not saying I don't know what performance testing is. I'm not even saying I don't know the names of performance testing tools. I'm not saying I don't know the value of performance testing. What I'm saying is this isn't something I've done for a while. I want to take X, Y, Z away and go and have a look. I want to ask you some questions about what you want me to do. And that's a different way of phrasing it than going back with a blanket. No, I can't do that. Right. Or certainly you might want to go back. Right. You don't want to seem uh, likewise. You wouldn't want to take this to its logical conclusion and say, I don't know anything. (laughs) Uh, Right. Like, why did you hire me? I'm just going to quit. But right. To go back and say, okay, you asked me for this performance testing plan. Either when would you like it by and how long should it be? And what metrics do you care about the most? Mm either asking those questions or offering some examples so that the person on the other end can have some ideas and help you shape what you're going to be putting your effort into, I think uh, makes a lot more sense than just walking away saying, okay, and then delivering something after hours or days that is not what they had in mind. And you mentioned hiring. I guess interview situations are a place where this is particularly difficult, where you're being put on the spot and asked to present the best version of yourself that you can. If someone asks you a question in an interview and you genuinely either don't know the answer or you've not worked with the tool or the framework in question, saying no or I don't know can feel like a you know, a blocker to you getting a job potentially. I think you're right that sometimes it is a blocker and those are not the kind of companies that have hired me, honestly. Right. I've, I've certainly been in an interview where I said, I don't know, and the person said, make something up. And I thought, oof, I don't want to work here. That's not the kind of place I belong. But going back to what you said earlier of, of not saying just, I don't know, but here is why, here's the reason, or here are other things that I do know, or right, I'm not sure I've tested an API before, but I'm looking in the network console, or I've used this tool called Postman, but I haven't used it routinely. One of my colleagues helped me with it at some point in time. Like I've seen the interface, but I'm not sure I could know how to set it up without someone's help, 
right? Just offering that you can have a conversation about your experience and that allows the interviewer to get a better idea of what you have actually done. And that's the point of you being there is to figure out where your needs meet with the companies and whether this is a role that you are suited for and can grow into or is something completely over your head or they're looking for someone with different passions and interests. And from my own experience as interviewing, asking the sort of questions that can generate an I don't know answer can actually be really valuable to understand how candidates deal with that. One of the ones that I like to either ask myself or see being asked in an interview is a question that basically doesn't have an answer that someone can give. These are kind of the typical kind of not trick interview questions, but the things like one I was asked in the past was how many gas stations are there in the UK? And it's like, there's no way to know the answer to that unless you're a complete trivia nerd. But you, what you want to see is how the candidate approaches answering that. Like, um, no spoilers, but, you know, I, I live in an art area within, within 10 square miles of me. I could think there are X number of stations and I'm in a particularly populated area. And oh, here's like how many petrol stations per head of population. And at least just desc- describing how the candidate goes about that rather than going, well, I don't know how to answer that. Right, because the point of an interview is to try to figure out how the person thinks and how they would reason through something. And right, I think being put on the spot is certainly something you would be curious about in an interview, um, how someone would handle that. The more that you can try to parse out skills that are normally proven over a longer period of time in some artificially (laughs) and unknowably short period of time, uh, anything that helps you with that will be useful. I got into an argument with someone on Reddit recently who was arguing that those sort of questions are a complete waste of time in an interview and give you no insight into a candidate's ability at all. And that's why I don't go on Reddit very often. (laughs) (laughs) I think it uh, can bias you towards people who have heard the particular question that you're asking before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm just thinking about um, one of my math professors at college asked us how many pennies right, if you stacked them um, one on top of the other and like piled them as high as the Empire State Building, how much space would it take up on the table we were standing in front of? Mm. So trying to figure out like, okay, you know, each, right, the table was a few feet off the ground. So it would, you know, you'd need maybe a third of the table or the height of the room for a story worth of pennies Mm. and then figuring out how many stories the Empire State Building was, right? Like they would fit on the table. (laughs) Yeah. But then if I went to an interview and got asked that particular question, I would be able to reason through it and explain it to you like I just did without having, you know, I could fake it in a way that uh, question, right, yeah. the gas station one. I'm like, I don't know. I don't ever see gas. Sta- I'm, a, I'm a biker. I, I'm never, I'm on a bicycle. I'm never looking for a gas station. Yeah. So even if they exist around me, I don't notice them. <laughs> Yeah. So like when you're interviewing, there are all these biases that you're not even aware of that you might be selecting for by accident. I actually have one of these ones that we did in an interview. It was the the really classic one that I was surprised the candidate hadn't been asked before, where you've got like a a five liter or a five gallon cup and a three gallon cup. And you've got to work out how to get four gallons of water by, you know, filling one and pouring it into another mm-hmm, and empty. Mm-hmm. It's that, that thing. But he, he thought this was some kind of logic problem. He was like, can I can I freeze the water? In one <laughs> what, can, can I puncture a hole? Can I measure where four liters? Like, no, just it's, it's maths. The thing right, we're right. to do is the, how you move the thing. Like, <laughs> we just moved on to the end of thing. And we'll talk about a few more of the reasons why doubt builds up in our day to day life after we hear Elizabeth about your third song selection. Oh yeah, this is uh, Ella Fitzgerald singing "I Can't Get Started." I was in a vocal jazz ensemble in my high school, which was a 
public school, but very fancy. <laughs> and um, yeah, one of the things, in addition to learning the songs that we were singing for the group that the teacher recommended was listening to a bunch of recordings. And I started listening to the jazz radio station uh, in northern New Jersey, where I grew up. And yeah, listening to various recordings. And this was uh, something I fell in love with. I've flown around the world in a plane I've settled revolutions in Spain The North Pole I have charted But can't get started with you That was Ella Fitzgerald with I Can't Get Started. So we're talking about saying I don't know and the uncomfortableness of doing so, particularly when you're reporting up to a manager. If a manager asks you a question and you're tempted to come back with the answer, I don't know, what is perhaps, if you took a breath, thought about it for a second, what is a better answer to give than I don't know? I think that more often what happens is I want to give them a confident answer and I need to go back and check, do I actually know that that's what happens? I'll find something on the test environment and they'll say, well, you know, is that how it works in production? Is that what production's doing right now? And I say, yes, of course, or no, of course not. But like what I really need to do is go and check production, right? It's it, much more often I have the opposite problem where I feel immediately confident and, and like I think I know the answer and I have to think, oh, is that actually what I want to say, right? Or, or am I sure that I can test this in the given amount of time? Or am I sure that that's all the questions I have on this story that we're estimating? Weirdly, we had an example of that confidence at the start of our recording today. I'm going to have edited it out because I'm a professional. But at the start <laughs> of the recording, I said that you'd spoken at four different test bashes. And I did it with such confidence that you thought I might be right. And we both had to go <laughs> and check. And the answer was, no, it's three. <laughs> but for some reason, I got into my head that the answer was four. And you we were like, is it four? <laughs> to go double check. Well, that too, because then I think I, I more often lean in the opposite direction where there are things that I'm pretty confident about and would know better than other people. And I still let other people talk me out of, right, like biographical details about my own life. That's absurd. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're all fallible, even, even those of us exactly. who do this, do this basically for a living now. <laughs> right. And I, I think that's if you're going to be showing up on a team and constantly telling people that they are fallible, which I think is a lot of our job as software testers is to say, oh, that thing that you thought of, that's not exactly right. Or here's this thing you didn't think of. Right. To, to have that humility about yourself uh, <laughs> means that people will want to keep hearing from you instead of just... Um, ignoring your input mm. yeah i think that's what a lot of people don't realize about managers is one of the reasons that a manager is a manager is because they can have a team of people underneath them who have specializations and can answer the questions that the manager themselves doesn't know and they're probably reporting it to someone who's asking them questions where their answer would be you know if they were to say it out loud it would be i don't know but what it probably is is let me go away and find out and i'll talk to someone underneath me and they, maybe they'll know Right. And so I think to go back to your other question about not just saying, I don't know, but saying, I don't know, let me get back to you by the end of the day. Or I don't know, I want to check this particular set of test data. Or 
I don't know, but I was just talking to this person about it yesterday. Let's go find them and double check. Right? Like taking the next step to get to the answer is what you need to do. And Mm. ideally being able to express what that next step is immediately is that's hopefully within your power. Yeah. You can also use safety language to a degree, depending on how confident you are. So you can say things like, well, I I believe it's this, or I'm pretty sure that it's X, Y, Z, but let me go and check. And again, the amount that which you do that depends on, you know, how much you do or don't know. I guess you do have to be careful though, that you're not being seen as someone who just sort of talks in weasel words and just, just gives like, you know, like a politician's answer to every question. (laughs) Yes. I would not want to be seen like that. That's true. (laughs) I'm trying to think of how I'm seen and I'm not the best person to answer that question. So (laughs) you'd have to ask my colleagues. And before we get into our final section, let's hear your fourth song choice, Elizabeth. Oh, sure. This is Parliament Funkadelic with Give Up the Funk, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker. Going into marching band in high school, this is not something that I thought I would come out knowing all the words to and be obsessed with the mellophone part, which is the, um, for those who don't know, a marching French horn. It looks like a big trumpet. It is not a percussion instrument like a xylophone. Yeah, this is something I love to play in the stands. The mellophones had the best part of the sort of, um, during the chorus, the descant. Anyway, it's the best. Parliament Funkadelic is the best. Let's hear it. That was Parliament Funkadelic with Give Up the Funk, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker, which I believe now takes the record for the longest song title that's been on the podcast in 23 episodes. <laughs> so Elizabeth, your talk at Tesbash is called Doubt Builds Trust. And I guess one of the reasons that testers are scared of expressing doubts is because of this age old phrase we hear, quality assurance. The fact that we're supposedly going to assure people of the quality and well, if we have doubt, how can we assure people of anything? Yes, that's a big philosophical question. I ask myself that a lot. Um, I think uh, it would be wonderful to have some more assurance. And I I think certainly people, I've been in the position at several companies I've been at where people come to me for assurance, right? Like they want to know that the thing is going to work. They want sort of all of the answers. Uh, They think that I have found everything um, or that by me looking at it, it will suddenly be better. And I don't think any one human has that power. Certainly not someone who's just looking at it and not actually fixing any of the bugs um, they find. But yeah, I, I much prefer the term tester to quality assurance and have uh, struggled with managers who have felt the opposite. 
yeah, what you described, I've sometimes heard referred to as quality reassurance. It's that, it's that kind of that comforting arm on the shoulder. Phrases like quality assistance sometimes get thrown around. I heard someone say question assurance. Like, I, I, there's one thing I can assure you of. It's that I'm going to ask you loads of questions about this thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, yeah. When my title did have QA in it, uh, I was, yeah, I would tell people that it was for question asker because mm. I, I definitely did that all the time. <laughs> I think it's a term that is, it's starting to go away as you move away from the mindset of testing being a form of quality control as like the, the older waterfall sort of gated process starts to die away. It does still live on day to day. It drives me mad the fact that our scrum board has a column called in QA, which really means that Neil is looking at this right now, <laughs> but it's called in QA because it's what people are happy with and I haven't got the energy to change it right now, but there we go. And I think you're right in that too pick your battles and realize what's important. And if it means that you get to see everything before it gets sort of declared done or to some other state, right? Like it, as if you're part of the process and that's what allows you to do so, then I think that's a step in the right direction. I think that's the thing. I, I'm a lot more interested in, in the role that someone does rather than what they're called. Although I understand that particularly in large organizations, if, if someone's only exposure to you is seeing your job title and they make their own assumptions from that about what it is that you do and the skills that you have that can be dangerous and difficult uh, sometimes it's good to try and break those boundaries down yeah i think also uh america is a lot worse about that than the netherlands i'm really enjoying both the organization that i'm in is is very flat and yeah people are much less concerned i think with titles and addressing people i think britain is probably the other end of that spectrum <laughs> we we still have a lot of our sort of banking financial institutions are still quite in the old ways and you obviously have industries that are slower to change than others it's one of these things that it's hard to judge though because i seek out organizations that work the way i like to so the impression that i get is that things are changing quite quickly but i appreciate that i'm right. i'm in my own little community i've been to events that are a little more the old school of things but um, yeah, I, th- I think the more we, we build community and the idea, trying to spread these ideas, the fact that there are these ways of doing things and the fact that you might want to question what it is that you're even doing, it's really useful in, in making sure that change gets through. Yeah, exactly. If you're not questioning what you're doing, how are you going to get better? And I think that's true both as a person and mm-hmm. as a team and uh, for the software. There's one other thing that I think is really useful for helping to, to banish the fear of doubt. And I think that's the fact that as testers, we are prone to being naturally curious that is that if something isn't the way we want it to be or if we don't know what it is then we're curious to find out the answers to those and i think thinking more about doubt in terms of curiosity can be a really useful way of breaking down the fear of doubt yeah i like that a lot and definitely that's uh curiosity is what gets me excited about my job and oh yeah there was something at work recently where it was we were having a hard time prioritizing it because on the development side it was just replacing a library and it was the kind of thing where you made one small change um, as a developer and then on the testing side it could affect anything you would need to figure out to sort of either test everything or prioritize like okay you have two days go what's the most important thing and that like the the sort of scariness of that to me is, is what's the most fun about it. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully that'll come around the bend soon. And we talk about all sorts of different things that testers do, such as finding bugs. And if you're looking for bugs, then the places where you don't know the answers to things and where other people in your team don't know those answers, that, that is rich ground to be explored for where problems might be because it suggests that people either haven't thought through something or they can't have thought through it if they don't understand it fully. So that, that's another real benefit to getting involved in the areas where there's doubt. Yeah, I have found that when someone says, 
oh, you don't need to test that. Don't worry about it. It means that they haven't worried about it. Um, <laughs> and that drives, like, drives me a little bit insane, but also is certainly uh, a right place to find things that haven't been thought of, right? It's, uh, that's a good place to start asking questions. Well, one thing we are certain of that I know you've given a lot of thought is your final song choice. This is uh, Ubi Caritas. It's a setting by Maurice de Rufle. I was in a choir in New York before I left, and this was one of my favorite things that we used to sing. That was Ubi Caritas by Maurice de Rufle. The version you heard there was performed by the Choir of Trinity College, Cambridge, conducted by Richard Marlowe. That was your fifth and final song choice, Elizabeth. Now, people who go on the Tessa's Desert Island also get to bring one book with them to keep them company on the island. And that book gets added to our collection on goodreads.com, where you can find books from all previous guests. I think you're the first guest we've had on who's been an extremely active user of Goodreads. You actually have it linked on your website. I do. Yeah, I have outsourced that piece of my brain of <laughs> when people are like, oh, what, what were you reading last month? It looked good. And I, I just cannot tell them because I, I, don't, I can't ever remember. I, I put it in the app and then I forget. But yeah, that's the main way that I or when, then I use it most often for when I hear an interview with an author or um, someone recommends me something, I put it in Goodreads so I don't forget to read it. And then I also found this plugin that tells me whether something is available from the library. And more specifically, now that I haven't gotten a library card here yet, um, if it's available on Kindle, that's pretty clutch. So yeah, I I read a lot. And I'm happy for everyone to see what I'm reading. (laughs) (laughs) And I see you've also used, for example, the tagging feature, it appears that you quite often tag books that you're tying into talks that you're doing. I also saw you've got a tag called Pretentious Book Club. Oh, yeah. Some of my friends in New York, one in particular, Sahar Baharlu, started this book club. And we would read things that were hard enough that we wouldn't have read them by ourselves. Like we were were all pretty voracious readers. And so tackling something like Infinite Jest or The Power Broker with a group made it a lot more manageable. Excellent. Well, I'll link to your Goodreads profile in the show notes so people can go and see what you're reading. I guess you're reading so much that it's, is it difficult to tie it down to one book for your choice? Yeah. I know. When you said, yeah, people choose five <laughs> songs and one book. I'm like, oh, that's backwards, right? You can sing the songs if you're on the island. You can't write. I mean, you could write a book, but oof, I would bring five books and one song. But yeah, anything. I'm, I'm pretty stingy with my five-star rating on Goodreads. So anything I've, I've given five stars to is definitely worth the time 
Excellent. Well, there'll be a link to your profile in the show notes. Uh, I'll also put a link in the Goodreads page to your page. Um, I'm sure there's a way of doing that. I'm not really an elite top tier user of, <laughs> of Goodreads, but I'm sure there's a way there I can make that happen. So that will happen. In the meantime, if people would like to get hold of you through other means, like the social medias, where do they go to do that? Oh, yeah. I think Twitter is probably the best. I'm mildly addicted to it. <laughs> Ezagroba, E-Z-A-G-R-O-B-A. But anything that's yeah linked from my website is something that I use and you'd probably succeed getting a hold of me. And I can see on your website, you've got a bunch of talks up and coming. In particular, November looks a bit crazy. You've got two talks in 24 hours. I think it's 36 hours. Like I have one uh, in the morning yeah. one day and then the afternoon the next day. It was still not the best choice. I think <laughs> I just joined in the women in testing Slack channel. Somebody started a room specifically for how to say no and <laughs> uh, being able to say no to things better and that is yeah doing two talks in the same week is not something i should have said yes to and i'm gonna get better at that in the future yeah. but yeah I'm, I'm speaking at agile testing days and um eurostar that week in november and then later in november at let's test in south africa fantastic and as for the show itself you can find us on twitter at testers island you can also find in the show notes the link to the aforementioned Goodreads list and our Spotify playlist, which is now well over 100 songs deep. And in the meantime, it's been wonderful talking to you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Neil. This was, this was fun. I was scared to do it, but I really enjoyed talking to you and it gave me some more ideas about what to add to my talk. So thank you. Fantastic. And as for you, listeners, I'll be back the same time next week. We're talking to Kim Noop about her talk at Test Bash San Francisco. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your early September and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovich. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island.